Ephesians chapter 2, and we will be looking at verses 11 through 22 this evening. So if you are not there, please go ahead and head that way, and let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for this day. We thank you for the grace that you have given to us to be saved, the grace that you've given to us to be a part of a body of Christ and this local body that is an expression of that spiritual reality. We pray, Father, that you would bless us. We pray that you would grow us to be more like your son, Jesus. And as a result of this, that we would dive more into unity, into fellowship with you and unity and fellowship with one another so that you would be glorified by what takes place within our lives. Please arrest our attentions, grab our hearts and our minds, and cause us to be focused upon your teaching, and that you would instruct us in the way in which we should be going. And that would be all unto your glory, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So to recap a little bit of chapter 2, we have looked at the concept of being spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, looking at the concept of what that means being dead in our trespasses and sins and having two specific problems of nothing in and of ourselves that can commend us to God legally. There's nothing that we can present to God that shows that we have satisfied the demands of the law. And that's a particularly important point that we're going to talk about in verses 11 through 20 of satisfying the demands of the law of God. And as spiritually dead individuals, that's an utter impossibility that we would be able to do. We would also be in the problem of having nothing in and of ourselves to be moved to God personally. We have no desire for God being spiritually dead. We have no idea of the joy of the Lord. We have no idea of the benefits of saving grace. We have no idea of anything in the kingdom of God because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But then we also looked at several weeks ago how God corrected that, how he remedied that. And that was by giving us grace, faith, and salvation. And those are all the gift that's being talked about there. It's not just faith, it's not just grace, it's not just salvation as the gift of God, but it's the grace, faith, and salvation. All three of those concepts form a singular unit of the gift of God. And so this evening we're going to look at another comparison that's going to take place. And the purpose of these verses here is to examine what it's like to be God's peaceful dwelling place. And that's even an an immediately amazing concept to begin to look at and to begin to focus on the reality of of God living with us and, and not even necessarily just living with us, but actually dwelling within us, dwelling as His holy sanctuary within each and every one of our lives. And as we compare the concepts between what it's like to dwell in the, uh, to be God's peaceful dwelling and what it's like to not be God's peaceful dwelling, we're going to see a lot of wonderful things that will benefit us within our lives. But that's the whole idea that we can see here in verses 11 through 22, is we can see how to have the right motivation how to have the right foundation, and how to have the right attitude towards living as God's peaceful dwelling place. And so Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says this, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, 
Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together is growing in a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so as the Apostle Paul still begins to uh, explain to us some doctrine, he explains to us some theology of what it was like before Christ and then what it's like now in Christ, he begins to explain these terms in the idea of being either excluded or included. And so he begins to draw our minds, in fact he even commands that you would remember these things, that you would remember how it was prior to becoming a Christian, that you would have it on your mind what it was like when you were not a Christian. And even though you've been spiritually saved, it's not as though your mind has been erased, but that you have those memories, you have the understanding with those memories of what it was that you were doing prior to becoming a Christian. And Paul is saying, keep this on your mind. Remember what it was like when you were excluded. So, not just the issue of being spiritually dead, but now you have to grapple with and wrestle with the reality that prior to Christ, and if this is you this evening, this is you this evening, that if you are not in the Lord, if you are, have not been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you are not believing in Jesus then there is an exclusion that exists within you and God, as well as an exclusion that exists between you and the other individuals within this room. There's an exclusion that exists. Oftentimes we think about the realities of how uncomfortable it may be when we go into a youth group and we might see that there's already friendships that exist. And, and in these existing friendships, though unknowingly most of the time and, and hopefully not willingly all of the time, that these kinds of groups have already established close connections. They've already established close relationships with one another. And as a result, it's, it's a little bit more difficult for somebody to be included into that group of individuals. And as you experience sort of that exclusion from either some or all of the groups, it might not be something that you would enjoy, or it might not be something that you would like to do. And in fact, you might then think to yourself that youth group kind of is lame because I am excluded. And in some degrees, there is that reality that exists. Yes, that is 
kind of a lame concept for somebody to be excluded from other groups, if we can put them that way, within a youth group. But imagine it in this degree. And when you see it in this capacity, those kinds of exclusions diminish. They don't seem to be as important. They don't seem to be as big of a deal when you begin to think about the ultimate exclusion that can exist in the unregenerateness that can exist in an unbeliever's life, that if you are not saved, there is no way, even if you were in the group, to be included into the totality of that group or even into the whole body of Christ in this church or the body of Christ universally. You are completely separated and cut off totally. That is far more significantly worse of an exclusion. And imagine what that's like to feel excluded and triple that and, and quadruple that and even, even multiply that times a million times and that will come close to being 10% of what it's like to be excluded from the body of Christ. To be separated from Jesus. And of course... The, the whole idea of being included in other groups is something that we have to address because that's important to the context. But have it impressed upon your minds. Remember what it's like to be on the outside. Not even on the outside looking in. You don't have that luxury as a spiritually dead person to begin to look inside into the kingdom of God and begin to see the warm fires and the wonderful meals and the happy families and the great lives that exist in sanctification, though there are problems that exist as well. You don't even have that ability. You're spiritually dead. You're laying by the wayside in the snow on the side of a road in the middle of the night. You don't even know that you're in such a horrible condition. And in such a dangerous place to be. And as if that's not even that much of a thing to impress upon our minds, if that's not even important in and of itself, it says that you're even separated from Jesus Christ Himself. And as a Christian, hearing those, those words put together, hearing that phrase exist in its own sense, to be separated from Christ is to hear the most tragic heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, and hard-to-hear reality. What it would be like at this point knowing Jesus Christ to be separated from Him is one of the most haunting things. That's, that's scarier than a scary movie. That's scarier than actually being chased by somebody trying to kill you. Is the idea of being separated from Jesus. And that's what it's like prior. Remember what that's like. Have that impressed upon your mind. Keep that on the forefront of your mind. That prior to Christ, there was a separation that existed between you and God. There was a separation that existed between you and the Father. You had no access to Him. God was literally at a distance in terms of your relationship and fellowship with Him. You had no access to Him being separated from Christ. You were, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, that just simply means you're excluded from citizenship among the people of God. You're not a citizen. You don't belong in the kingdom. You don't belong in the city of God. You don't belong in the coming kingdom of, of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. You're excluded from that. And Paul says, remember that. 
He doesn't even stop there. He talks about the reality that people prior to Christ have no hope. Now, we could actually kind of broaden that out, expand that out a little bit and say, well, there, there is only one hope that they could experience, and that would be the Jesus Christ coming into their lives and regenerating them by the power of the Holy Spirit. But even then, the idea that's expressed within our text, and we can use the biblical vocabularies to say that somebody prior to becoming a Christian has no hope. You have no hope as an unbeliever. There is no hope that you can come up with within your life. There is no hope that can be conjured up within your life. There's no hope that somebody else can even give you in that sense. You are existing in a lifestyle in which there is no hope. Hopelessness is the definition of an unbeliever's life. And Paul says, remember that. When you think about and you look back upon that life that was lived prior to becoming a Christian, you see hopelessness. You see alienation. You see strangeness. You are a stranger in the world in which you live. Paul says, remember that. Keep that on your mind. That's one of the immediate applications of this text is, is when Paul is saying, here's, here's the definition, here's the explanation of what you were like before Christ. And he says, remember, remember that you formerly, as Gentiles in the flesh, this is how your life was. Now, why would he say that? Why would he instruct a group of believers to remember their lives prior to becoming a Christian. Why would anybody say that? When you think about the horrors and the, and the gravity of the life that has no hope, that kind of a life that is alienated and separated from Christ, when you think about all of those different things, why is it that it would be beneficial to your life to remember that? To remember the, the theology specifically. Not that you have to go through, pull out your list of every single sin that you've committed and keep that on your mind. Remember the doctrine. Remember the theology of what it was like prior to becoming a Christian. Why would he say that? Why would he say, remember these things? I think immediately when you begin to see that the Apostle Paul is teaching and encouraging you to remember what it was like in the former life, it creates a sense, a deep sense of humility. An incredibly profound and deep sense of humility, knowing where you came from and why it is that you're here as a Christian knowing that it wasn't anything that you did, knowing that it wasn't anything that you initiated, knowing that it wasn't anything that you instantiated, knowing that it wasn't anything that you came up on your own as if you rolled out of bed and said to yourself, all right, so here's my plan for my life. Here's the high school I'm going to go to. Here's the college that I'm going to go to. Here's the woman I'm going to marry. Here's the man I'm going to marry if I'm a woman. And here's the religion I'm going to pick. It's not the case by any way, shape, or form. And that's... I think that's probably how the picture is so often painted within our society. In fact, parents are even talking about the reality that they, they raise children to a certain point, you get to a certain degree within your life, and then from there, it's time for you to make your own decisions. And, and you need to start making your own decisions about what to believe, what career choices to have. And there's a lot of 
truth in some of those things that's being said, but in the reality of salvation, that's not something that you can, as a spiritually dead person, come up with to be a Christian, nor would you even want to if you actually had the ability. That was the issue there. And yet, God had pulled you out of that and brought you into this position of intense blessedness. So when you remember what it was like, and you remember how you got here, there should be a deep sense of humility. Understanding that you were a sinner in this capacity prevents you from thinking too highly of yourself. And in fact, we've even already seen in verse 9, in the very same context as chapter 2, that in examining these things, Paul is saying that he is expressing these truths and these realities so as to keep you from boasting to keep you from getting to that position of having heard so much about all this blessedness of chapter 1, all the privilege that you have, all the inheritance that you have. It would be like being the prodigal son, grabbing all of your money and then running around saying, look at all the money I've earned. Look at how rich and wealthy that I am by my own doing. (coughs) And so brings up in Ephesians 2 the reality of how you got to be in this position therefore boasting is excluded and it prevents us from getting into that understanding of recognizing I became a Christian somebody else isn't a Christian and I'm better than them because I'm a Christian the reality of salvation is that you are never better than another sinner even if they're not saved What makes your existence acceptable to God is the work of Christ. And you have still the capacity dwelling within you. This is Romans 7 where Paul screams out, where he shouts out and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? I keep doing the things that I hate. And and I'm not doing the things that I want to do. All the good that I could be doing, there's a, there's a severe prevention of that good that could be taking place within my life because of the existence of sin that continues to remain within me. And so when you examine the life of somebody who's an unbeliever versus somebody who is a believer, and you ask the question, what's the difference? Why is this person a believer and this person is not? It's nothing that either one of them has done or has not done. Understanding the disorder that's remembered in the present life can create a greater enjoyment of the peace that you have. There was enmity that existed between you and God. You were at war with God. Being an unbeliever does not mean you don't acknowledge the existence of God. You know that He's there and you do what is necessary to get them off your conscience. That's the lifestyle of an unbeliever. And so as they fight against God, as they raise up and take up arms of sin against God, you can see that when you remember the theology that exists. You can understand and know what it was like in this disorder and in this chaos 
And when you begin to have that pressed upon your mind, you can have a greater sense. You can, you can catapult your enjoyment of peace into levels that it couldn't have been if you're not forgetting about what you've been cleansed from. In fact, Second Peter even talks about in chapter 1 that somebody who does not live lifestyles of excellency moral excellency, adding to their faith, self-control, and all sorts of different things. People that sit there stagnant in their Christianity are forgetting their former life. They're forgetting what they've been saved from. And they're short-sighted. They can't see anything beyond their face. They can't see the bigger picture. They can't see the bigger implications of temptation. They can't see the bigger implications of their own decisions and their own choices. These are the kinds of people that rush headlong into a marriage with somebody who is a horrible person. And then, of course, you experience all kinds of difficulties. Being short-sighted prevents you from seeing the greater good of relationships or the greater evil that could exist. And that's exactly what begins to happen when you don't think about what you've been saved from and you're not diligent to examine and to take care of the grace that has been given to you to grow to be more like Christ. Another thing that we can see that is beneficial is understanding the hopelessness that you had before can create a greater enjoyment and experience of hope now. Charles Spurgeon even actually once said that a diamond shines its brightest when it's pitted against a black surface. And so when you begin to take the gospel, when you take Jesus Christ, who is your peace, who is your wisdom from God, who is your sanctification, who is the gospel very much so for you, when you take him and you pit him against that black surface of your former life, he is magnified. The more that you begin to see the horrendousness and the hopelessness and the chaos and the disorder of this life prior to Christ and you begin to have Christ compared to that over and over and over again, this looks even worse and Christ looks even greater. This looks even more unenjoyable and Christ looks even more enjoyable. This looks even more dissatisfying and Christ looks even more satisfying. That's exactly the benefit that you can see here. And that's one of the greatest tools in your arsenal of resistance of sin and temptation. Is to see the greatness of Christ pitted against the black surface of your former life. Seeing Christ pitted against the black surface of your former life gives you a greater perspective of something that will still always be yet future within your life and that's a holier you and then ultimately in the ultimate eternity future a a holiest you where you have no sin and you have the full possession and stewardship of the righteousness of Christ and enjoyment and ability to worship him forever completely freed up of all of the calamity and cares of this world so that the two other tenses of life, the the former life, the past life, and the present life are lives that you do not enjoy or get comfortable with and that you always have this sincere gospel motivation within you to progress to a future section of your life whereby you are now holier than the you that was previous. And when you have 
an understanding that the future is better, or at least the you in the future is better, your hope increases exponentially. Understanding your former exclusion as well also gives you greater satisfaction and thankfulness of being included. So he shows us this issue and this picture of the exclusion that exists. Then he creates for us this sense, this understanding, this doctrine and this theology behind what it's like to be Included All the things originally that we saw that we were excluded from, we are now included in. This idea of hope, this idea of, of even having direct access to the Father. That was an issue that for millennia, for thousands of years, was something that the people of Israel had longed for, had groped for, have been obsessed with the understanding of is to be able to have finally and officially, perfectly and permanently direct access to God Himself in the person of the Father. That way has been entirely opened up for you. Jesus Christ has literally and even spiritually paved the way to come directly into fellowship with God now and then ultimately again this issue of the future of looking ahead of being able to go into fellowship with God permanently you never have to leave you get to you get to stand in the presence of the almighty creator of heaven and earth things that people would risk their lives for because his holiness is so great that it would physically kill them people would say I don't care if I die in the Old Testament I don't care if I die show me your glory the reality that the glory of God could be the most enjoyable attribute that you could ever experience was something that Christians understood in the Old Testament and I even do mean the term Christian in the Old Testament followers of Christ and that way, that access, that open door, that open window, that open hallway, that open alleyway, that open universe to, to be able to go directly into the access that is granted by Christ and to experience God. You've been included. You've got that now as a Christian. This understanding of being separated and cut off and living in rebellious enmity towards God, you've been excluded from enmity now. You've been included in God's peace. He's taken you out of those children of wrath. He's taken you into a position whereby you experience this peace that is with God. There will always be one common factor and one common factor alone that creates the sense of peace with God, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He even says that this is what grants this unity. Now, now bear in mind the significance of the barrier that was broken down. The existence between Jew and Gentile is a chasm that, that is there that separates those two people groups that there would be absolutely no fellowship between the two. And if you were a Gentile, you would have the hardest time fellowshipping in the entire community of Christ. And yet because of the gospel, that barrier that exists between, and bear in mind, this was, 
in the first century, this probably was an even worse division than Muslim and Jew. This probably was an even worse division than Christian and Muslim. The barrier that exists between those two religions, the barrier that was present between Jew and Gentile was exactly the case in which you would see, you would point to the reality of the experience of a Gentile and you would, you would do nothing but talk about them in demeaning terms. In fact, a very common expression of a Gentile would be a Gentile dog. You would look at them as a very unclean animal, as a very insignificant animal. In fact, not even as human. These are subhuman individuals, and it doesn't even matter what happens to them. And yet, this one singular factor united the greatest chasm between people groups that existed brought them into fellowship and relationship with each other. Of course, they experienced problems. Galatians chapter 2 even shows us problems that even the Apostle Peter got caught up in, and still an idea of division. But bear in mind, Galatians was the gospel repairing any issues that took place after the fact. But the gospel of Jesus Christ brought those people together. What brings you together with God is obviously salvation. What brings you together with one another within this room will always only ever truly be the gospel. You're not seeking friendships with somebody because they're good looking. You're not seeking friendships with somebody because they seem to be cooler in the youth group. You're not seeking friendships with somebody because you've known them the longest. What is bringing you together ultimately, and it is ignorance to avoid and ignore this, what is bringing you together as individuals is the fact that Jesus bore your sins in His body and brought you into right relationship with God, thereby bringing you into right relationship with one another. The gospel is how you have meaningful, lasting relationships, even within this youth group. You share a commonality of salvation. You share a commonality of being indwelt with God, being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You're no longer in an unsatisfying arrangement known as enmity. You're in a reality of peace. That's what the idea means behind peace. Peace is a satisfying arrangement between two groups. And even our word would talk about when two armies were at war with one another and when they would lay down arms and would no longer be fighting that's the peace that's being talked about. It's not that idea that when somebody has an action that they're going to do, and they say, I got a peace about this. It's not that idea. And bear in mind, feelings can be deceptive. I've had plenty of times where I've needed to do the right thing, and it did not feel good at all. And so the peace that's being talked about here is that reality that exists whereby you are no longer aliens you are no longer strangers and you are no longer enemies with god and therefore that would be the case with one another
The Holy Spirit is the bond of friendship inside the church. The gospel is the bond that unites Christians, or at least it should be. Now you also notice here something that's important to mention, and our time is basically gone. So I apologize for going over a little bit here. But it's not just you that's mentioned as the dwelling place of God. You're being built up together as the dwelling place of God. Think about the Old Testament and all the times that God brought judgment upon people misusing His temple, misusing His place of worship, misusing His place of residency, and then begin to apply that to one another. If your desire would be like David, even though he didn't get the chance to build the temple, would, would still have that desire to build for God a good dwelling place, then one of the greatest assistances to making God's dwelling place a lovely place is your relationships with one another. Of course, that also exists that your relationship with God would be soul, would be primary, would be absolutely essential in building God's wonderful dwelling place, but it would also exist that you would correspond with one another in terms of building God's dwelling place in mutual co-laboring work with one another and in loving one another. That doesn't mean that you sit back and you wait for somebody to come to you. It is the equal involvement of everybody in one another's life so that if I'm more concerned about somebody else and if everybody's more concerned about somebody else, then everybody else will be the recipients of those concerned. And then at that point, you can be taken care of too. Just a couple of real quick applicational points and then we'll let you guys split for small groups. The differences that we've seen have been included Christians versus excluded Christians. Included Christians are those who stand on the doctrines of the prophets, apostles, and Jesus. If you say that you're included in the fellowship of Christians and you're numbering yourself amongst the body of Christ and you don't stand for these truths, then that's a contradiction in our text because you're being built on the foundation. You're being built on the foundation of the prophets, apostles, and Jesus. It absolutely matters what you believe. And in fact, you want to you want to become a greater friend to somebody else, take in more of the prophets and the apostles and Jesus. It's the foundation for which you stand. And in fact, at some point if you want to be a great spouse to somebody else, if you're interested in marriage or interested in, in somebody of the opposite sex, be a better you and a better you is somebody who knows more about what these guys believe and stands upon what they preached. It absolutely matters that you're believing the same thing that Jesus did. You could flesh that out more in your small groups. Secondly, included Christians form a community of fellow like-minded believers. An explicit statement of you're trying to be unified with somebody experiencing friendships and relationships with others and relating to other believers within the church. Holiness is the foundation of these 
communities. Included Christians are forming a community with one another. And there, there, isn't, there isn't a reality of some people that exist. In fact, you don't exist only in a youth group. You exist in the church known as Heritage Christian Fellowship. And in some degree, way, shape, or form, then there is a community that you are building even with somebody who's 80 years old. And how are you being involved in their lives? How are you being involved in the lives of people that are outside of this youth group? How are you being involved in the lives of being an example for those kids that are younger than you? I don't know how you guys realize it, but people, especially younger kids, are going to first look to you guys before they look to somebody who's walking in in a walker. That's not a cool person. That's an old person. And all that they're showing you as an example is that when you get old, it's really bad when it comes to walking. And I don't, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be having a hard time walking. I want to be like you guys. So how are you reaching out to other members within the church? So let's go ahead and talk about some of those things as well as whatever your leaders are talking about there. And let's go ahead and close in a quick word of prayer and then you guys have just a few minutes for small groups. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this grace and this gospel that you have given to us. We pray that you would bless us and that you would teach us and grow us to be like Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.